Anytime someone mentions like an event from the 90s, in my mind I think, oh yeah, that was like 10 years ago. And then it occurs to me that was 30 years ago, Kyle, the 90s, okay? That's how time tends to get away from us. Well, I'm going to share me a 90s story here with us. It was October 1995. It was a Tuesday. I was in seventh grade at Pete Junior High in Conroe, Texas, when the whole world that day seemed to stop. Every class in our school paused to watch what was on TV that day. It was the verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial. And if, you are, if you're as old as me, you certainly remember that day. It seems like a bizarre thing for us to watch in school, but that, that's a testament to how big of a deal that verdict was and how nobody wanted to miss it. And then the verdict was announced on live national television, not guilty. And there was this audible gasp in the seventh grade classroom. I, I still can't get over it because it seemed fairly obvious to me and to most people at Pete Junior High that he was guilty. But O.J. had the best trial lawyer that money could buy. And if you're old enough to remember, then you know this guy's name. It was Johnny Cochran. And Johnny had this amazing ability to, uh, to cast doubt on evidence over here and then to distract from that testimony over there and to introduce some wild conspiracy theory over here. And in the end, right or wrong, in the end, it worked. Not guilty. Now, for some of us, especially like me, if you were young at the time, that trial defined for us, this is how the justice system must work. This is how lawyers and judges and juries must operate. We didn't have any other context to go by. And so I can remember some years later coming to 1 John chapter 2 and being a little perplexed. Because here, we'll see it today, John pictures a courtroom scene where we are the ones on trial, as it were, for the sins that we have committed, and yet we have a defense lawyer, an advocate who is standing on, uh, on our side in our defense, presenting our case, and it's Jesus. Jesus is our defense lawyer in this image. And it's a peculiar image to us if our perception of a lawyer is Johnny Cochran, or maybe just the guys on the billboards as you drive down the highway, right? I mean, when we say that Jesus defends us, what exactly are we saying about him? What is he doing for us? Well, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 today. One truth is going to feed into another, but we're going to spend our, our, the majority of our time just on the first two verses of this chapter. So I'll read them here for us. Uh, look at verse 1 with me as John introduces... This, this wonderful idea. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. My dear children, John says, y'all, he is so personally and lovingly invested in these people. He really is like a father to them. And John right here lays out a, an important purpose statement that guides the whole letter. He says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. 
And this becomes very clear as the letter goes on. But John is deeply concerned with holiness and obedience. We saw this last week. At the end of chapter 1, John writes concerning sins, but he says something that we might not expect. He says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We understand that God is holy, and yet He's also faithful and just to forgive. And we might come to a false conclusion if we're not careful, and unfortunately, a great many people have walked this path. We look at the prospect of confession and forgiveness, and perhaps that might lead us to think, my sin must not be all that bad. If all I have to do is confess it to God and God's going to forgive me, well, then that takes some of the sting out of sin. Perhaps I can just sin all I want. All I got to do is turn and talk about it, confess it to God, agree with God, and He'll wipe it clean. And some people will come to the conclusion that sin must not be all that heavy, that bad, if God's so eager and quick to forgive. But y'all, if we come to that conclusion, there's a fancy word for it, it's called antinomian, against the law. I don't care how I live, God will forgive me anyway. John would say to that, and he does, he says, you're walking in darkness, Kyle. You don't really know Jesus. Because if we really knew Christ, if we really received Him for His grace and salvation, then we would never treat His forgiveness so cheaply. We would renounce our sins. We would obey His commands instead. And so John is very clear on this. He says to the church, my desire is for you, Christian, to renounce and reject sin. I'm writing so that you may not sin. But John understands, of course, something about himself and about you and me, and so he's very quick to bring us back to the gospel foundation here. Two quick things John reminds us of. First, we all still sin. Even on our very best days, we are fallible. We sin and we fall short of the glory of God. And second, y'all, it's not our righteousness that saves us in the first place. It's not our sinlessness that makes us acceptable to God. In that case, no one could be accepted. And we see all this played out in verse 1. Look at the latter half of that verse now. John says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, if we're thinking in merely human religious terms here, what does our sin produce? God commands us to reject sin. So what happens when I still sin? Well, that would put me out of God's grace. If I'm doing the very thing that God has forbidden, the obvious outcome should be punishment and rejection and withdrawal, alienation. I no longer belong because I did the very thing that God said not to do. But John tells us something altogether different here. That if we belong to Jesus Christ by faith and we've entered into a certain kind of relationship, we now have Him as our advocate. And that word advocate is very seldom found in the Bible. In fact, the only other place we find that particular word is when Jesus uses it in the Gospel of John to refer to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, Jesus says, is our advocate. Now John says Jesus serves in this role. And it's a word that means helper, it means comforter, strengthener, and defender. And specifically here in John's terminology, this is the idea 
it carries. It's a lawyer who stands on your behalf pleading your case before a judge. The advocate's role is to defend you from both accusation and condemnation. And who is this advocate? John tells us it is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, obviously, this is good news for us. But it brings us back to the question I posed earlier. How does this work? What does it really mean for Jesus to be our advocate? What's he doing in this case for us? And why do we need it? Let me give you three very brief points on this word advocate and Jesus' role here that I think are wonderful for us to consider. First is, you'll notice how John writes this in the present and ongoing tense. John is not speaking in past tense, but present. Y'all, the work of Jesus that's in view right here is happening right now. Right now, where you sit, Jesus is acting as your advocate, which means the forgiveness that he purchased for you on the cross all those many years ago is still continually being applied to you right here as we speak in real time. We never speak of God's mercy and grace strictly in the past tense as if it's something he once did and you were once forgiven, but now it's up to you to figure out the rest. That's not how this works. That's why we sing it's a never ceasing stream of mercy that comes to us. His grace is always being applied. His mercies are new every morning, the Scripture says. So first is, it's present tense. Second, y'all, Jesus being our advocate with the Father, clearly in this case the Father is the judge in the courtroom image. Does that mean that somehow Jesus and the Father might be at odds? They're almost like working against each other. As if to say, God is the righteous judge and he really wants to punish us. But thankfully, Jesus is getting in the way of that judgment. No, we need to clear our minds of that idea. Because we remember, according to Jesus, all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. I only do what I see the Father doing. I only speak what I hear the Father saying. They're always in concert together. And so we understand it was the Father's love, the Father's kindness and mercy that sent Jesus to save us in the first place. God's heart is not turned against those who are His. He is for us. And so, y'all, if we carry out this courtroom image here, clearly there's accusation that's taking place. Who is the one accusing us? It's not the Father. It's the enemy. It's Satan. Satan is the great accuser who wishes nothing more than for our eternal condemnation. But in this image, as we play it out, Jesus, our advocate, no accusation against you can stand because of the one who stands on your behalf. The Apostle Paul makes this very same connection for us in that great chapter Romans 8. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. He asks questions and then he furnishes for us the answers. Romans 8, verse 33, Paul says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He is our advocate. 
The idea being that there is no charge that can stick. There is no condemnation that will stand because our advocate stands for us. And this brings us to the third point of Jesus' advocacy. Because we might wonder, okay, in in this courtroom image, what exactly is Jesus' case here? I mean, what's he saying on our behalf? Because if he's functioning as our defense lawyer, he has to have something to bring to the judgment to get us off the hook. So what is he saying? Is he pleading our innocence? Is Jesus like Johnny Cochran? Is he finding some sort of clever way to obscure reality so he can get us off easy? No, and see, this is the peculiar thing about what John is telling us here. There's no point at which, we, at which our guilt is ever even in doubt. There's no potential for innocence here on our behalf if it were up to us. We are guilty. The Scripture says we are all guilty of sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and therefore we have no excuse. There is no alibi. We have no extenuating circumstances. And so what does Jesus have to work with here? The answer is given to us at the end of verse 1 in his name. Notice how John refers to Jesus Christ, the righteous. And y'all, what that means for Jesus Christ to be the righteous one, the righteous advocate, that means that he does not defend sinners by trying to locate some innocence in us. Jesus does not defend you by trying to find some shred of righteousness in you that he can point to and say, oh, see, he's not all that bad. No, Jesus defends you by pointing to his righteousness for you. It's not your righteousness in you, it's his righteousness for you. And this is why verse 2 just explodes off the page. One of the great verses in all the Bible. Verse 2 says, and he himself, Jesus himself, is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, Jesus can stand forever as our advocate because He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. That word, propitiation, is very rare, like advocate, very rare, even in the Bible. We don't encounter it very often. Perhaps in your translation, your Bible may call it atoning sacrifice, which is a good translation. But what it really means, even deeper than that, That word propitiation means that something has been done to turn away the wrath of God. It's not so much about removing our guilt, which of course Jesus also does, but propitiation is about removing wrath by satisfying God's demand for justice. Now some people have a real problem with that idea, with a God of wrath. Because we think, perhaps, that that implies a God who is always furiously angry, flying off the handle, you know, capricious in His decisions. He just loves to make people suffer. That's what wrath means, and we don't like to think of God that way. But y'all, if if I may, let me just give us an illustration that I hope would, would help us a little bit in this, in understanding the difference in what it means that God has wrath. Um, I'm probably actually going back to the 90s here without meaning to. Did you ever take a test on a Scantron? Anybody? Y'all raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. 
Scan, oh my goodness. Remember how you had to have a number two pencil? If you had a number, have you ever found a pencil that wasn't a number two pencil, by the way? You had to have a number two pencil and you had to fill in the bubble all the way. And if you didn't, you were in trouble, right? On the Scantron thing, you had to fill in the bubble with your answer, and then you would fill out the whole test, and then they would take that sheet, that special sheet, and they would feed it into the Scantron machine to be graded. And of course, you got very simple and straightforward results in that case. You were either right or you were wrong. There was no in-between with the Scantron because the machine is a machine. It has no bias. It has no feeling. It gives no explanation. The machine does not care how you got the answer. You don't have to show your work. It's irrelevant because it's a machine. Now, is this how God judges between good and evil? As if it were a simple binary option. A is good, B is evil. A is right, B is wrong. No feeling, no passion, no personal involvement, just outcomes. We say, no, of course not. That's not how God judges between good and evil. That's not how any person would judge between good and evil. Certainly not the Lord. Because good and evil are not just binary choices. There are very real things that come from real people, real human hearts, real decisions, and real good and evil outcomes. People really experience blessing or suffering as a result of good and evil. And so when we read of God in the Scripture, we don't read of a God who simply dispassionately judges outcomes. No, we read about God delighting in goodness. He delights in goodness because He's altogether good. It's who He is. And then, of course, we also see God... Hating evil because he is altogether good. And we understand when we consider that good and evil are not just binary categories. They're real, fleshed out life and death issues. So when we talk about sin and evil, we never talk about them as simple right or wrong. No, we talk about sin as being destructive. Sin corrupts, sin poisons, it divides, it destroys. Sin is abusive and selfish and perverse and dark and ugly. It's the reason the world is the way it is. And so how else would we expect a good and loving God to respond to such darkness? Y'all, when the Scripture says that evil arouses God's wrath, That's a testimony to how good he is, that he would hate what is evil. And God is not moody or capricious. He doesn't fly off the handle in anger. In fact, one of the great descriptors of God throughout the Bible is that he is long-suffering. He is patient. He's unbelievably merciful to those who sin and turn from him. But he does, of course, because he is good. He has a settled, righteous anger toward all that is evil and dark. And He will judge the world accordingly. And y'all, if it's distasteful for us to think of God that way, I'd love to know what alternatives we have. Because frankly, if God did not hate evil, I just don't think He'd be worth worshiping. Okay, thanks for the clarification, Kyle. But this doesn't sound like good news. If God has a settled wrath toward evil and sin, how is that good news for me if I'm a sinner? Well, it's not. The only way this becomes good news is if God's wrath is propitiated. 
And this brings us back to the wonder of verse 2 and the heart of the Gospel. John tells us Jesus Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. To anyone, anyone who looks to Jesus and trusts Him as Savior, He Himself is your propitiation, meaning Jesus has satisfied the demand for justice in your place. Jesus has taken God's wrath towards sin upon Himself. This was God's design for what happened at the cross. There on the cross, Jesus was treated as we deserved. Jesus was treated as our sins deserved. He took the full penalty, the full condemnation for the sin of the world upon Himself. Y'all, that means all the darkness and abuse and perversion and corruption of our sin was accounted to Him as if He had done it so that it might not be accounted to us who did. And therefore, His death serves as the once-for-all judgment for our sin. God's wrath, rather than being poured out on those who deserve it, God's wrath is absorbed into His Son and then done away with. When Jesus died, the judgment for our sin was put to death with Him. And so that now for anyone who trusts Him, for anyone who turns to Him in faith, we receive not wrath, but mercy, and only mercy forever. So when Jesus stands up for you as your advocate, who is He pointing to? He is always and forever pointing to Himself as the reason for our justification. You are forever set right with God in spite of all your sin because Jesus bore your sins away. And y'all, this is something I pray we never get over. That somehow these two things could both be true at the very same time. That God passionately hates sin. And God passionately loves sinners. We don't have a category for that. God has to create one. He passionately hates sin. And He passionately loves sinners. And in His love, He sent His own Son for us that He might be our salvation and our redemption. If you trust in Jesus Christ, there is a never-ending stream of mercy. Or as John said in the last chapter, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's good news. Now there are four more verses still to go in this section, and the preacher has already used up most of his time, okay? But what I want to tell us concerning verses 3 through 6, what we're about to read is a theme that recurs. It keeps on showing up throughout the letter. So we'll only touch on it today, not at length, but it will come up again. Here's what I'd like us to do, though. Revisit with me verse 1 before we leapfrog over to verse 3. What's the very first thing John said? Do you remember? I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, we spent most of our time today talking about God's grace to forgive our sins. 
But we have to recognize the bigger picture in view. Being a Christian means God also gives you grace to reject sin, to live a new life. The grace that saves us is also the same grace that now transforms us. And John doesn't want us to miss it. So now look at verse 3, the outcome of those who are saved. Verse 3, by this, John says, we know that we have come to know Christ if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps Jesus' word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So John is taking a look here at what we would call the fruit or the evidence of salvation. How do we know that we've come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, the first and most obvious sign of that salvation is obedience. John says we obey Him. And in verse 4, he doubles down by showing us the negative side of the coin. He says there is no knowing Jesus apart from obedience. It's living a lie. And then in verse 5, we see that this obedience is not just external. It comes from the heart. He says whoever keeps His Word in him or her, the love of God has truly been perfected. Now that verse is worded a little oddly, but what John is saying here is that our obedience shows forth genuine love for God. If you're a parent, you've probably said to your children at some point, listen, if you love me, then you'll do what I say. You don't get to do it just because you feel like it. You do it on the basis of this relationship here. And it's not just authority, it's love. If you love me, you'll do it, right? That's, that's the idea. That it's our love for God that propels and, and shows forth in obedience and brings that love to completion. And so when John says that the love of God has been perfected in us, I think what, what he means is that our obeying Jesus from the heart is the truest measure of love for God. It reaches its goal. What does, if I really love God, I'll do all sorts of good religious activities, I'm sure. But the one surefire proof, the evidence, the joy of the application of that love is that I do what He says. I obey His Word. That's the perfection, the completion of God's love in our heart. And then, of course, He says, what's more, verse 6, our trusting and loving Jesus will result in our imitation of Him. We will walk as He walked, in love, in humility, prayer, self-sacrifice, and, and so on. Now, I say this very briefly here by way of reminder, because we say this all the time. It's Jesus' work that saves you, not yours. It's not your obedience that gets you into God's good grace. Our obedience is response to salvation. It's not the cause of it. And of course, we understand also that John is not talking about perfect obedience. We never obey God perfectly, which is why, of course, we have an advocate with the Father. We've already been through that. But the message that John's giving us here, I hope, rings very clearly to us. That there is no cheap salvation. There is no receiving forgiveness and walking away unchanged. If I really believe in who Jesus is and what He's done for me, there will be an unmistakable change in my life. 
In fact, that's one of the promises of God when He promises the new covenant that Jesus uh, instituted through His death and resurrection. One of the features of the new covenant is God says, I will give them a new heart and I will put My Spirit within them. So we don't just have an improved sensibility. We have a new heart. And a new heart, y'all, it means new affections, new desires, new ambitions. We begin to see life Why am I here? I'm here to no longer live for myself, but for Him who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And y'all, if we have a new heart by God's grace, that also means we see our sin in a new way. We start to see our sin the way that God sees it. Whereas I used to love my sin, and I would do all that I could to excuse it and to justify it, to tolerate it, now I grieve it. I'm meant to. I'm meant to hate it as God hates it. I'm meant to renounce it for His glory. Y'all, if we've come to know Christ, imperfect as this journey is, right? If we come to know Christ, though, we're going to actually want to obey Him and to please Him in light of all that He is to us. Nobody should ever have to threaten you or twist your arm on this. If you really see His grace and have received His love, then your heart ought to want this. Fumble it as we may. It at least ought to be the dominant desire that pulses through our veins. Or maybe we can put it this way as we close. Uh, Tim Keller used to say, only in Christianity do you get the verdict before the performance. Only in Christianity do we get the verdict before the performance. So think about what that means. It means that God loved you, and God sent His Son for you while you were yet a sinner. It means that Jesus saves us without any regard for our prior obedience or worthiness or any love that we may have had for Him somehow. There's nothing at all that we bring to the table that's necessary for our salvation. Everything is provided in Christ and He does it without our permission. He didn't ask, he didn't take a poll first before he entered into the world. He simply came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's how much he loves us. And y'all, if that's true, if God would love us that much at our most unlovely, then how over the moon should our love for him be in response to his prior and greater love for us? If Jesus really has given himself for us, then how resolute should we be in our allegiance and our obedience to Him? Y'all, what John is saying, if I could just squeeze it down into one sentence perhaps, to be a Christian means all at once we rejoice in the freeness of God's grace to us through Jesus Christ. And we also respond to His grace in calling us to a new life in Christ. We both rejoice in His grace to save and we respond by giving our life in obedience to our Savior. And I want to call us to that this morning, to receive Him and rejoice in Him and by His grace to respond with all that we are. Here in a moment as I pray and as we sing, Uh, Our pastors, Evan and Aaron, will be available to pray with you. If you'd 
like to pray or just to talk through what salvation is or anything that, that God might be doing in your life right now, we're here for you. And so here in a moment, I want to encourage you, if the Lord might stir you to respond, that we'll be here to take you by the hand to listen, to pray. But all of us ought to respond here in a moment as we sing how great is our God, that we recognize the depth of what we sing, the truth of what we declare. He is so great as to propitiate, to stand as our advocate, to call us to new life and to grant us the grace to live it. Everything that we are, we are because of Him. And so let's pray and thank Him for this today. Lord, as we imagine, as John imagines for us, a courtroom drama where we sit guilty, without excuse, Father, without any righteousness in us to even lessen our sentence, should we be found guilty. Father, that ruins our sense of what we might bring to the table here, what we think we deserve because we think maybe we're better than, uh, than Lord, your estimation of our sin through your word. And I pray, Lord, that we just remove this morning all such pretense. And Lord, we just fall upon your mercy entirely. If not for Jesus Christ being our propitiation, satisfying the righteous demand for justice, if not for Jesus standing as our advocate, pointing to his own sacrifice in our place and applying his mercy to us, Father, we just don't have any hope at all, none. And yet, Father, I pray this morning for us that we would just recognize this and bask in it, that because Jesus is all of these things for us and more, that, Lord, we do not sit under the heavy weight of judgment any longer. I pray, Father, that we would recognize the freeness, the joy, the gladness, the awesomeness of the light and grace in which we now live. Jesus Christ is our Savior. And now and forever, it will be only mercy. Father, only the riches of your kindness and grace toward us through your Son forever. So I pray, Lord, I pray this for me. I pray this for Harvest Church. That, Lord, our response to this grace would be urgent and strong. That we would, not, we would no longer dabble in sin and keep it warm and available. That we would no longer, uh, Father, God forbid, we would ever treat sin as light and cheap because we think you'd forgive it anyway. But Lord, that the new heart would, would view life now as you view it, Father. That we would love what is good and hate what is evil. And then we, we might respond to Jesus Christ, Lord, with all of our allegiance and devotion because we know the great cost of His love for us. And we know that we are free in Him. Now, not just free from sin, but now free to 
righteousness, free to be, Lord, who you created us to be. So help us, Lord, where we, in, where we inevitably fall and sin. Father, remind us, Lord, that we have an advocate who draws near with, a, with, with urgency and joy to act on our behalf, to pour out grace. But Lord, let us never take advantage of this grace. Lord, let us walk in it. Let us ask, Lord, how we might live more and more devoted to you. Father, let both be true at the same time. Let us rejoice in your mercy and respond to your call. In Christ's precious name, amen.